This is Rabbi David M. Kohn, and we're back here on the show, entitled, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. Today's show is going to be very moving, very poignant, as we're going to talk about the death of the famous author, Nobel Peace Prize winner, best-selling author of many, many, many books, including the book called Night, Elie Wiesel, who died in his Manhattan apartment this past Saturday, whose funeral was this past Sunday. And really, the entire world has been impacted, touched by the life of Elie Wiesel. On the second part of the show, we're going to be having a conversation with the author, Felice Cohen. Felice had 12 million hits, I kid you not, 12 million hits on her YouTube page about her living accommodations. She just wrote a book called 90 Lessons for Living Large in 90 Square Feet or More, where she talks about the principle of histapkut bimuat, which means being content with less, which is a great virtue in, uh, in Jewish writings, in Jewish law. And Felice is really a product of, she's not a Holocaust survivor per se herself, but she is the product of grandparents who were, in fact, survivors and really impacted her life and the way she chooses to live and impacted her story of how she ended up in the 90 square feet in Manhattan. So in the second part of the show, we're going to get to hear from Felice and hear about her life story and hear about her book and hear about the impact that the Holocaust had upon her. But here in the first part of the show, I want to talk about Elie Wiesel. And in particular, I want to talk about a small book that recently came out that I was fortunate to read. It's not one of his most famous, well-known books, but it's actually his last book. And it's entitled <clears throat> Open Heart. It actually is a book that talks about at the age of 82 years old, Ellie passed away at the age of 87. So five years ago, at the age of 82, Ellie was facing emergency heart surgery and his own mortality. And in this book, he wakes up from that operation. He reflects upon his life, the emotions, the images, the faces, and the various questions flash through his mind. And he thinks about his family before the unspeakable events of the Holocaust and the gifts of his marriage and children and grandchildren that followed. And in this writing and in his teaching and his public life, he's always posited the question, asked the question, has he done enough for memory and the survivors? And he also deals and grapples with his questioning of God. The book has an approbation on the back from President Barack Obama, who says with characteristic eloquence, honesty, and wisdom, Elie Wiesel takes us on another journey to the precipice of death and draws timeless lessons about life. And I thought to myself, there's so many books that we could talk about in terms of Ellie's contribution to the literary genre, and Knight is really foremost in many of our minds. I remember reading Knight when I was in high school and being so taken by it and raptured by the events that he describes that transpire in the periods of the Holocaust in the 1940s, in the 1930s and 1940s, and, but, but, you know, honestly, this little book that I'm holding here in my hands, that's not more than about uh, 75, 80 pages right here, is really incredibly poignant, you know, that a person would have the consciousness or the awareness to kind of write their little magnum opus 
per se, and to you know address the lack of certitude that many of us deal with, that we struggle with in life. Ellie's there. He's arrived at the final destination, and he writes this book from a place of being almost there. And many of us are on different pathways of our own progression of our lives, and we really have no idea kind of when it ends. It could end the next moment. It can end tomorrow. It can end uh, next week. Nobody really knows. I just want to begin by reading from one paragraph here towards the end of the book. And Ellie is recuperating from his heart procedure. And he says, am I really saved for good? I doubt it. Nothing seems real to me. Still, death has evidently decided not to claim my body as yet. A strange heaviness overwhelms me. It is in my chest, my head, and it pulls me down toward the void. I feel the proximity of the dark, implacable enemy. I no longer know where I'm going, where I am, who I am, nor even what I want. The doctors try to convince me that from now on, for a few days, a few weeks, I must be patient, that the feeling of being cut into pieces will disappear. But when? Tomorrow? The day after tomorrow? If only I could sleep a week, perhaps even a month. Really just incredibly honest and poignant, the power of the pen. I want to talk for a few minutes about Ellie's very public struggle with God. It's interesting that many of us at different stages and phases of our lives struggle with our faith in God, struggle with our belief in God, struggle with our relationship with God. I've seen in my own experience as a rabbi, that many times when people are recuperating from tragedy, when people are coming off difficult, difficult types of tragedies, that unfortunately as a rabbi of a community, I've had the opportunity to deal with. We're going to hear a little bit about suicide in the later part of the show. And I had uh, occasion to deal with uh, suicide and, and death of a very young, loved, dearly loved uh, young lady in my community a few years back. and. I remember talking to her mother after the death and after the mourning period. The mother shared with me that she found prayer and engagement with God to be incredibly difficult. She certainly harbored a lot of ill will towards God. How could this happen? And this is certainly something that people struggle with. I'm not making comparisons. Obviously, Elie Wiesel carried with him the loss of his parents, loss of his uh, sibling, his loved ones, and profoundly impacted his life, the Holocaust, and devoted his life towards memory and remembering and not forgetting what transpired. And it's quite understandable that the person that has been to the abyss and has dealt with such trial and tribulation in their life would have issues with God. And I think it's something that is worth reflecting upon because many of us are different, uh, could be of different faiths, different levels of uh, religious observance, different connections to God. And what I always admired about Elie Wiesel was that he struggled. He didn't uh, give up on God. I think his son mentioned at the funeral that he, had, that he has a different relationship with God than his father does. And that his father, to his credit, to Elie's credit, was somebody who never gave up on God. And I can only imagine uh, what it must be like now in the heavenly spheres where a person who raised so many questions about God through his life has finally reached the point where he's going to have some answers. And it's interesting because I often try to comfort people who struggle with God. Where is God? How does God enable this to happen? And I often share with people that it's appropriate 
to have issues with God. When we're in a real relationship with somebody, so we can have you know, an entire array of feelings toward that person. We can be angry, we can be sad, we can be excited, we can feel love, we can feel hate. But at the core, we're in a relationship. When you've completely given up on a person, so you don't feel anything towards that person. They're not in your sphere of influence. You're done with them. I've had people in my life where at times I was livid at them, I was disappointed with them. But over time, at a certain point, you know, at a certain point, you know, you don't care anymore. They're just kind of, you've removed them from your, uh, you know, your influence, your, your kind of, you know, their ability to influence upon you. I once read in the psychology book that many of us, uh, we, we let people affect us like we're like an elevator. There's an up button, the down button. We let people, we're like the elevator car. We let people affect us. They push our buttons and they can make us go up and down and up and down. And sometimes we finally are able to kind of say, you know what, enough of this. I'm not letting somebody else have such control over my life and I'm relinquishing their ability to control me and I just don't care about them anymore. I'm not angry with them. I forgive them. I'm just done with them. They have no place or space in my life. By contrast, when you still feel the pain and the anguish and you're still struggling with the difficulty, and in particular here I'm talking about the relationship between Ellie and God and the awareness, the God awareness that Ellie brought to the world, I think that's something that's incredibly poignant and powerful. I read a story, I don't remember exactly where I saw it, that Ellie was, came from a devout religious family and how he was devoted to religious practice and observance and was a member of Orthodox shuls on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, initially at KJ and subsequently at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue where his funeral actually transpired and took place this past Sunday. And I read a story about Ellie that he was sharing that after the camp had been freed by American soldiers, he was offered something that was uh, non-kosher, a pig or something to eat. And he remarked that a few hours earlier when he was still in prison, he would be permitted to partake of that forbidden food to save his life. But now, although he was emaciated and incredibly hungry, now that he was a free person, he doesn't have that freedom anymore to uh, partake of that which is non-kosher, which is an incredibly inspiring uh, statement from a person who certainly had many questions uh, about God and to God and, and harbored resentment toward him for the trajectory and spiral that his life uh, transpired, but ultimately, although carrying with him a tremendous amount of, of pain and disappointment and anguish, was able to motivate himself to be what is referred to by President Obama and others as the conscience, the conscience of the world. Somebody who was able to believe in the message that life has a purpose, that life has a mission, and that even when we've dealt with the harshest blows that a person can deal with, which is really what Ellie was exposed to and witnessed and saw, not to give up. We're going to see a tremendous contrast and not passing judgment when we talk to Felice in a few minutes. So we're going to hear about, tragically, how the events of the Holocaust subsequently led to her grandmother's suicide because it was just the guilt was so overwhelming for her. And we don't hear often about that side of events and the power of the Holocaust. And many books talk about the idea that, that Hitler, whose memory should be eradicated and erased, 
really wiped out, you know, subsequent generations as well because there's so many that have suffered in all different types of ways. The children of survivors of the Holocaust have suffered in, you know, innumerable ways, incredibly uh, difficult, painful ways in their lives. So the impact of the Holocaust you know, traverses way beyond just those who were immediately there and were impacted in the concentration camps, but certainly were passed on forward to uh, subsequent generations as well, and the impact is still felt in a negative way. And to contrast that with somebody such as Elie Wiesel and so many other incredible survivors who were able, despite having seen what they saw and experienced what they saw, to be able to be the moral conscience of the world and not to let people be indifferent and not to let people forget and to make sure that that message is carried forward. And I think from reading this book, Open Heart, that Ellie penned towards the very end of his life, you get the sense that although obviously all the questions haven't been answered by any stretch, but there is, there is a, some consolation. He says at the end of the book, my two grandchildren continue to be a constant source of strength and joy. So I watched them grow. I desperately want to keep the promise to my son Elisha to be present at Elijah's bar mitzvah and perhaps even at Shira's bat mitzvah. I've already been the beneficiary of so many miracles, which I know I owe to my ancestors. All I have achieved has been and continues to be dedicated to their murder dreams and hopes. I'm infinitely grateful to them. My life, I go on breathing from minute to minute, from prayer to prayer. Sadly for us and sadly for the world, Ellie is no longer with us. But his poignant words, you see the consolation in his perpetuation of having survived and having produced future generations is something that gave him great comfort toward the end of his life and really is an inspirational figure for each of us to, to learn from, to be inspired by, to read his works. I mean, the list is, is, is incredible. I mean, the list is just overwhelming to study his works and to understand the impact that one simple Jew who came to these shores after the war came, was a writer in Paris, and ultimately sold you know, millions of books and began a foundation to educate people in terms of the, the challenges of evil. I mean, we live in a world now where evil rears its ugly head in various forms in terms of terrorist activity throughout the globe. And each of us, it behooves us to never forget, never forget the impact that evil can have on society at large, on people's lives, and to band together people of goodwill to ensure that events like this never happen again. I'm going to just conclude this piece, this segment, before we get to Felice Cohn, and just mention something that I found very inspiring that I just read about yesterday. Those who follow the news know that there was a tragic terrorist attack that transpired two tragic terrorist attacks that transpired in Israel Thursday and Friday of this past week. Thursday was the atrocious, horrendous, there are no words to describe the murder of a 13-year-old girl lying in her bed in Kiryat Arba while she was asleep by a sickened, maddened Palestinian terrorist. And then subsequent to that, the very next day on Friday, a few hours before the Sabbath was coming, a family was, uh, was attacked by gunshots on the road, and a father of 10 was, was murdered in cold blood in front of his wife, in front of his children. Others were injured as well. Thankfully, his wife is making a miraculous recovery. 
And I read, it was heartwarming to read, that the initial first responders to this attack, the car was overturned, and it was actually Palestinians. It was Arabs who were the ones who pulled the children from the car. Their lives were in danger. They were the ones who called the Red Crescent, who called the initial uh, ambulances to come until the Israeli Magen David Adom was able to respond. And it's a little bit of light in a time of a lot of darkness to see that there are there are people out there, there are Arabs out there, there are Muslims out there, there are people, good people, people who care about other human beings, people who care about the importance of life, who are not going to turn their back on others. Because I had read in other attacks that transpired, particularly an attack that happened in the old city in October, where a woman had a knife in her head and she was begging surrounding Arabs for help and everybody was laughing at her and mocking her and telling her to die and spitting at her. So the contrast to see eyewitness testimony to see, because they interview them afterwards, to see Arabs that do care uh, is something that I think is a testament to the life of Elie Wiesel, that, that if, as uh, some of our famous, uh, you know, famous uh, rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, once commented that a lot, a lot of darkness can be pushed away by a little light, right? A little bit of light can push away much of the darkness. And this is something that Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel once stated in the United Nations as well, something that uh, he uh, adapted in his time and his tenure there. And it's so important for each of us to remember, particularly on the heels of these tragic events and after the recent death of Elie Wiesel, to always try to add light and not to be deterred by darkness, but as much light as we can add to the world is something that's going to make a real difference and a real impact and there are going to be a few people that are going to take heed and ultimately will be able to create a revolution. May Elie Wiesel's memory be a blessing to all. Possibility, laughter and smiles When I'm with you I'm soaring high and free When you're in my world I believe in me I look into your eyes and see that I can be stronger, I can be braver I can be, I can be anything Anything I wanna be Anything I wanna be
life is the people we love and what we give to one another. Loving is giving, giving is life. Life is the people we love and what we give to one another. Loving is giving, giving is life. We're here with Felice Cohen, who is the author of 90 Lessons for Living Large in 90 Square Feet or More. Felice is the author of uh, various books, also What Papa Told Me and the Fancy Tales book series. She's written for the New York Daily News, AM New York, and Metro, and writes the blog Living Large in Any Space. Felice, it's great to have you on the program, and uh, it was so nice to meet you a few weeks ago at the... uh, Jewish book event where uh, we met. We sat next to each other. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you uh, Where did you grow up? Well, yes, well, thank you for having me on. So I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and I happen to be here for the summer. So there's no other place to be in the summer than Cape Cod. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so great. And did you ever think of, did you always think of being a writer? How did, how did you kind of become a writer? Uh, it was in college I discovered writing. Um, I was recruited to play a couple Division One sports, and it was too much, so I decided to stay connected. I would cover sports for the paper, and then I discovered opinion writing, and uh, what better than a Jewish woman with an opinion? Mm. So I, I loved writing, and I found out in college that my maternal grandmother had committed suicide instead of uh, having cancer, as I'd been told. And when I asked my grandfather why, in order to tell me, he told me um, about what happened during the Holocaust. And I wrote about her, and that's when my grandfather asked me to write about his life so his children, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren would know, and that's really where the seed was planted to become a writer. Interesting. So could you, I just, I, I'm not sure I, I got that 100% clear. So you're saying your maternal grandmother, you had been told that she had cancer, but that wasn't, in fact, the, the reality? Yeah, yeah. Before I was born, she died. And my whole life, you know, we asked how she died, and it was we were told cancer. Because when it happened, my mom was just about 18 years old. Suicide had such a stigma then, especially right. in the Jewish community where they lived in Brooklyn. And uh, so they told everybody it was cancer. And they really never spoke about it. And they also never really spoke much about the Holocaust. So it was my finding this out by accident, and then 
really talking to my grandfather, which opened him up to talking about everything. How did how did you find out about? How did you discover the truth one day? How was it on Earth? Um, my dad and I were were driving back to Cape Cod, and uh, we were just having a discussion. And he thought I knew, and he just kind of mentioned it, and I was just shocked. I had no idea, and I realized, you know, my mom had been protecting myself and my sisters from from the, the knowledge of the suicide, and I think also from the pain of the Holocaust, because we never really discussed either um, growing up. My That's mom so really just wanted to shield us. Your maternal grandmother had gone through the Holocaust? Yeah, she was a survivor. She was in Auschwitz. Wow. Um, yeah, she had, there were a lot of things that happened, as you can well imagine. And uh, she had been asked, while they were in the ghetto, in the Ludge ghetto, her oldest sister asked her to watch her twin boys, and she was taken away. And, of course, you know, my, my grandmother tried, but the boys were soon taken away to Auschwitz, and my grandmother just felt so much guilt of what happened that she didn't protect the boys. Wow. So she really carried tremendous pain, I'm sure. I mean, she came to she came to America, though, I gather, after the war? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My grandparents met in Bergen-Belsen in the DP camp, and then they came to America. And, um, you know, they had three children. They owned a grocery store. Mm -hmm. They were doing well for themselves, and the, and the guilt just proved too strong. And uh, the only way out my grandmother found was suicide. How many years after the war, I mean, how many years after she arrived in America did she uh, take her life? That was probably about 20 years. So she was living, you know, for, with all that pain for so many years after the, uh, after the events of the Holocaust. And it yeah. was your, your maternal grandfather then who then began to open up with you and share kind of the events that transpired, the backdrop in essence to, to your grandmother's tragic demise and of course to the the entryway into his own life is that correct correct uh -huh. so what yeah. did you, so what did you learn from your grandfather i learned everything um i really learned that you know there's always hope you know as, as tough as it was for him to tell me the stories that he went through and as tough as it was to hear these stories you know he says but look i survived and there's you know there's kind of a happy ending um as tragic as it was he uh you know, and you know, you go through life, and things can be hard. But I think about how what he survived and what he went through, and I figure, you know, there's nothing that I'll ever go through that knock mm -hmm. on wood will be as hard that that I can't get over and get through. I think I think of that often, meaning people of our generation. Um, we, we may not be millennials, but uh, you know, a little bit post-millennial age. But it, we, we live in an age where, I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom or comprehend the challenges that our ancestors, people that we were close with, people that we knew actually experienced and, and went through. It's really mind-boggling. I'm imagining your grandfather probably is not still alive, or maybe he is. I don't, I, I don't know. He just passed away last December. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, like two days before he died, he could barely speak. He was, he weighed nothing. He was so emaciated, but he could barely speak, and he raised his arms, and he said, my granddaughter wrote a book. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I mean, it was sad, and it was funny, because for the last about four or five years, he's been telling everybody to read the book, and, um, you know, I wrote that book as a gift for him. I had no idea it would sell 30,000 copies around the world, and, uh, and it turned out to be a gift for me. So let's just clarify. You know, so right? you're referring now to what Papa told me, that book, right? Is that uh, correct? Is that yeah, correct? that right. was the first book. So that was the first book you wrote. 
and maybe tell the audience a little bit. I know that you're, you're kind of a, uh, a sensation on, on YouTube. I think you've had millions of hits and people know all about you. And, of course, I would like to continue to perpetuate that uh, that uh, knowledge uh, of your of your work to, to others and to our audience. So just tell us a little bit, kind of how that book came about, and 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 maybe how your subsequent book came about. I guess it's it's a little bit intertwined. Completely intertwined. I like to say it's the shared. Uh-huh. I moved into that tiny space for one reason, and that's because even though it was only ninety square feet and it was in the middle of Manhattan, but it was only seven hundred dollars a month. And as you know, in New York. Upper West Side, that might as well be free. Yeah, wow. And it, it, was, it was a great opportunity, but I wanted to finish writing my grandfather's book. I had quit my job. I, had a, you know, I was chief of staff to the president at Hunter College, and I just said, enough, I have to finish this book for him. My grandfather really wanted it. And so I moved into this tiny space with no idea that it would just lead to so much more. And a woman, I wrote an article about how to live in a tiny space, and a woman who made videos of small spaces made one of mine and how I live there, and it went viral. It has over 12 million hits wow. now. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. People from all over the world email and ask for advice on decluttering and praising my philosophy about living large in a small space. And, and the emails also started to say, I read your book, your grandfather's amazing. And, and that really just made all the difference. That, that's what I really cared about. But, you know, eventually I was evicted because uh, the landlord saw me on Good Morning America. <laughs> And I was subletting illegally, yeah, so it was kind of crazy. No way, that's crazy. Yeah, it was. But it worked out. I had been saving all those years. I bought a place. And then then I thought, you know, I'd always thought, well, I wanted to write a book on organizing. How should I do this? I didn't want to add to, you know, the book clutter out there of all the books, and I wanted to make mine different. And uh, I figured, let me write it about telling the story of how living small made my life larger and it's, it's also a want-to guide, not a how-to guide, to help other people live large in any size space, meaning, you know, when you can eliminate stuff and you can just do more with your life, you're spending less time cleaning stuff and working to pay for stuff, and you're spending time, you know, with your family and doing whatever you want to do. It's such a it's such a counterintuitive concept because we live in a society where people tend to be constantly accumulating more stuff and pursuing more stuff. And you're out here advocating to people that all that stuff that you're pursuing and that you're accumulating is actually detrimental to where you may be going. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you I ever mean, we, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say you're right. We are consumer society. We think we make more money, we should get more stuff. But it's definitely counterintuitive. So, I mean, people shouldn't make money? Like, what's the goal? How do we kind of approach <laughs> no, this? I, you absolutely make money and share money and spend money and enjoy your life. But I think we get caught up with so much stuff that it's taking over our lives. And we think we own all the stuff, but guess what? It's the stuff that's owning us. Mm. It, we, we, how much time do we spend cleaning our stuff, putting stuff away. I tell people, you know, we have closets. Look in your closets. How many shirts can you really wear? We have stuff we don't like, we don't love, and we might not even wear it that much. Um, and, you know, it's. I tell people everything you buy is almost one more day to work to pay for it. Interesting. And I think this tiny home movement, one of the reasons it's getting so big, no pun intended, is because right. people are realizing they want more experience over stuff. So, so interesting. You know, when I, I every once in a while, probably once every year and a half or two, I 
get this urge to kind of clear out my clutter. And it takes a few hours, and I get the garbage bags, and I, you know, dispose of things or donate things. And frankly, it's the most empowering, amazing feeling when I'm done. Yeah. You feel so much lighter. Yeah. It's, uh, it's maybe it's something psychological. I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's kind of, it's very empowering. How, how many, so when did this start? Meaning what year did you move into this uh, 90 square foot? I, by the way, I confess I was one of the 12 million or maybe I'm the 12 million <laughs> first. I went yesterday to look online at your uh, living, your former living, living quarters. I wasn't so taken aback by the entire thing, except by the bed, actually. The idea of like, Kind of, you woke up and banged your head against the ceiling. That frightened me. But other than that, I was uh, I was pretty impressed. Kind of how organized it was. Yeah, I never hit my head. I moved in in 2007. I did have a, a panic attack the first night, and uh, I remember I was just I got out of the bed. I was freaking out. I had a friend over because I thought I'd fall out of the bed that first night, and she just kept saying, "Why did you move here? Why did you make that decision?" And I and I planned to live there for only one year, and I said, I lived here because I wanted to write this book about my grandfather. I want to finish the book. I'd been working on it for years. And then I thought about my grandfather and what he'd been through, and I thought, look at this. I have a bed. I have food. I have safety, security. This is paradise compared to what my grandfather went through, and if I can just do this for one year. And in that first year is when the magic happened. That suddenly... I had more free time, and I was happier, and I was saving more, and I wasn't inundated with stuff, and I was really focusing on what made me happy, and that, after that year, I said, I'm staying. I get another year, and another year, and another year, and until I got evicted, but it just, it changed my life, and now that I live in a, a larger place, just 490 square feet, it's definitely with less, and, um... I'm so much happier. So, so let me get this right. You were on Good Morning America, I think you said, or a different yeah. show. And yeah. you're talking about your living accommodations, and your landlord mm-hmm. is kind of listening, and he figures out that you're kind of illegally subletting? Yeah, I came home a couple days later, and there was a huge sticker on my door. It's an eviction notice. And um, I had been subletting from a woman who had been living in that space for a while. And when she first moved in, there was a different owner. And when it changed hands, she said she didn't know she couldn't sublet. But... Anyways, the first they said I could stay, and they would double the rent, and I said, okay, because in the Upper West Side, you still, still have a good deal. Right. Yeah, and then they said, no, you have to go out, and then I started looking uh, for places to, to rent, and everything was three or four times as much, and again, I didn't want to have a have to go get a job just to pay for something, and right. that's what my grandfather said to me, um, you know, he said, buy a place already, and he gave me the down payment. He said, you know, you lived in a shoebox. So you could write about my life. I want to help you enjoy yours. That's so beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. So well, you would say at the end of the day that, you know, the secret to perseverance, it sounds like for you a little bit was looking at others and being inspired or motivated by the difficulties or challenges that loved ones had been over to had been able to overcome and you use that as motivation. What would you say to other people maybe who don't have or didn't have that type of inspirational figure in their lives? How would you, you know, guide them in terms of how to persevere or how to overcome or how to deal with challenges? I think you you know, it really takes some focus and I think you have to see you know, challenges are not easy, and, and I think reading and listening to other people talk and tell their stories and trying to find inspiration in them, but know that, you know, this is it. We're here for just such a short amount of time, and, and you got to focus on the things and the people that you love and remind yourself about that, and, and, I mean, I guess it depends on what your challenge is to overcome, but, you know, what, you see what people go through and how they survive and how they 
how they get through it. And I think, you know, just because it was my grandfather, um, you know, there are other people whose stories have inspired me. And I think sometimes for me as, you know, being um, self-employed, you have to motivate yourself in a lot of ways. And I think it's finding what, what does it, what motivates you. Um, and just, you know, just working hard. Interesting. You know, I think, we, yeah. I'm going to end off with one last question, one final question. The first half of the show today, we spoke about uh, Ellie Wiesel, uh, who just uh, who just passed uh, this past uh, Saturday, and the incredibly inspirational figure that he was in terms of issues of remembrance and, and the Holocaust. And I'm just curious, somebody like yourself, who clearly has been so affected and so moved by the Shoah, by the Holocaust, what your thoughts are in terms of uh, the personality or the writings of Elie Wiesel? Uh, he was uh, he was at the top. I met him a couple times, and uh, once the first time in college, and then right after my book came out, and he actually endorsed my book, and uh, he just, I don't know, I losing him, it was like losing my grandfather again, just getting emotional. He was like truth. He was inspiration. He showed us how we could just, you know, try to overcome evil. And it's still happening in this world. And I think we still need to learn from the lessons he left us. Just keep never forgetting and talking about it. I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, your your life and your work is certainly a tribute to the past generation, to your grandparents. And uh, you really are, Felice, really, really inspiring. Right now you're working on a book on decluttering. Is that right? Well, that book just came out, oh. 90 Lessons for Living Large, yeah, 90 Square Feet. So I'm I'm just going around, actually, to t- tiny house festivals and the libraries and telling my story and helping people live large. And what's your next project? Do you have something? Well, right now you're kind of working on, uh, you know, getting this book out, or you haven't started thinking about a new project yet. I actually have another book I wrote. I'm debating if I'm going to uh, to have it published. It's a, it's a personal memoir about a relationship that happened in my life early on, and how kind of affected my love life for the rest of my life, I think, um, kind of happened. I don't know. We'll see. That sounds, uh, <laughs> sounds intriguing and sounds powerful. Yeah. And, uh, I'm not going to ask you too much more about that yet until you decide uh, what you want to do with that. But uh, we're honored to have with us uh, today Felice Cohen, the author of 90 Lessons for Living Large and 90 Square Feet. Felice, just want to tell people if they want to get a hold of the book, what's the best way to get the book? Sure. Uh, you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or my website, FeliceCohen.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck with the book and with everything else. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. So we had a, a really fascinating program today talking to Felice Cohen, the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and about how she lived in 90 square feet in Manhattan, how that inspired her to write a book about her grandfather and his life and how it affects her life till today. And also how we spoke about Elie Wiesel and his contributions. It always strikes me as somebody who's not a product of Holocaust survivors. I wouldn't say I was jealous, but it was always something I felt was missing as a Jew who didn't necessarily directly, wasn't directly impacted by the Holocaust. I'm always incredibly inspired and motivated to learn from and to hear from people that were directly impacted and affected because ultimately there's so many powerful lessons to be learned for life, particularly in the world that we live in today, where there really is so much terror and so much fear 
and so much loss of life in you know obviously not to the magnitude of the Holocaust on any level but but still we find that cr- across the world people are, are being murdered randomly almost in, in, the, in the based on false premises etc so it really is important I think for each of us to spend the time to learn these lessons well to hear the stories of a Felice Cohn, to talk about Elie Wiesel and his contributions, and each of us to be inspired in our, in our own lives to add a little bit of light to what seems like perpetual darkness, because if we do that, we're going to be able to light up the world and ultimately transform the world. Thank you so much for listening. Great having you on the show. We're almost there, living with patience, perseverance, and purpose. If we stick to those big three Ps, and we adapt the lessons of these programs of patience, perseverance, and purpose, then we will arrive at our destination sooner than we think. Thank you so much. Be well. Bye-bye.